Continuing into part two of our series entitled Keeping the Mission in Focus, where we are going through the four statements of our church's mission statement. Serving with our hands, loving with our hearts, showing Christ's love, and growing God's family. Now last week we began by explaining how a laser works and how we want to work together in unity and with a single focus to maximize the mission and to accomplish all that God has set out for us as a church. And so that's what we want to do this morning, to set that laser focus in on the second statement, loving with our hearts. Loving with our hearts. Would you bow with me? And let's ask God to bless his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have guaranteed that whenever your word goes forth, you will add your blessing, and it will go forth with your power. And so we pray that this morning again, as your word goes forth, that it will not return void, that it will do exactly what you intend for it to do in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives this morning. And so we welcome that work, and I pray that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in John chapter 13 and verses 34 to 35, the setting is following the Last Supper, where Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, as we looked at last week. Jesus gave them many other teachings that evening. And one of them, in verse 34 and 35, was this. A new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, Show me a church where there is love, and I will show you a church that is a power in the community. In Chicago a few years ago, a little boy attended a Sunday school I know of. When his parents moved to another part of the city, the little fellow still attended the same Sunday school, even though it meant a long, tiresome walk each way. A friend once asked him why he walked so far, and he told him there were plenty of other churches just as good, much closer to his home. The little boy replied, Well, they may be as good for others, but not for me. Well, why not? The friend asked. Well, they really know how to love a fellow over there. They really know how to love a fellow over there. And that love motivated him to make that long walk each and every Sunday. Moody then concluded with this penetrating statement. If only we could make the world believe that we truly loved them, there would, be, there would be fewer empty churches and a smaller proportion of our population who would never darken a church door. Let love replace duty in our church relations and the world would soon be evangelized. Let love replace duty in our church relations and the world would soon be evangelized. That really hit me. How much of our Christian lives, what we do, is out of a sense of duty and obligation rather than out of love for our Lord and love for our fellow man? So today, as we continue in our series, keeping the mission in focus, that is the emphasis, is on loving with our hearts. Loving with our hearts. In other words, if we only serve with our hands out of a sense of duty, it's only going to go so far. There has to be another greater motive, which is love. Our service stems from our love. 
And we'll see, in fact, in Scripture that without that love, our service amounts to nothing. Someone spotted a church sign that said, When God measures a person, he puts the tape measure around their heart. When God measures a person, he puts the tape measure around their heart. And this rings true for everything that we do, everything that we say, and everything that we are begins with the condition of our heart. In Mark chapter 12, verse 28, a teacher of the law, a very religious person, someone who had memorized the vast majority of Hebrew scripture, was quizzing Jesus, and he asked him this question in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. Of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so here we see that again, what seems to us, you know, the the age-old Sunday school answer is the correct answer. What is the most important thing? What is the most important commandment? Boil it down for us, Jesus. You're the Son of God, this great teacher and rabbi. If we were to boil down the full summation of all of the laws, what is it? And Jesus says, it's simple. It's love. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So this is it. Jesus boils everything down to these two simple statements which all hinge on this one word, love. Paul echoed the Lord's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and and the end of the chapter in verse 13, you'll, you'll recognize the verse and then into the beginning of chapter 14 and verse 1, listen to what Paul said. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love. The greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love. And so here we see again Paul highlighting what Jesus highlighted. The most important command and the highest of all virtues is encapsulated in this one four-letter word, L-O-V-E, love. So now, before we go any further... We have to ask the question, I know it seems perhaps elementary, but we have to ask the question, what does this word love mean? What does it even mean? Well, unfortunately, in our Western Canadian culture, we only have this one word to describe a vast array of different things. For instance, let me just give you a couple of examples. I could say, and I think I said this on Friday night with the youth, I love sweet chili heat Doritos. Anyone else with me? Sweet chili heat Doritos? Yeah, there's a few hands. Like, man, I just love those things. They're so good. The spice is just right. I can eat a whole bag. Like, it's just, they're so good. I love them. But now, I can also say, and and I did, just to throw this out there, I did say this before Leanne left on the retreat to my wife. I said, I love you. I use the exact same word as I use for the sweet chili heat Doritos. But did I mean exactly the same thing? Now, don't answer that. (laughs) The answer should be yes. I meant something vastly different between saying I love Doritos versus I love my wife. A vast difference. 
We have a running joke in our family that's sort of been catching on recently. Or if one of the boys says that they love something, whether that's food or a new toy, someone else will quickly respond with the sarcastic, Oh, do you want to marry it? Anyone ever done that before? Oh, you love it so much, do you want to marry it? Now, some of you already know this, and you already know that though in English we only have one word for love that we use for everything from Doritos to toys to to the deep love that we feel for a spouse or a child or a dear friend, in the New Testament, it was written primarily in the Greek language that the original authors primarily wrote in Greek. And Greek is a very precise language, unlike English. And they actually have four different words that we translate all the same as love. But they have four different words. And those words are storge, philia, eros, and agape. So these four different uh, words for love that we translate as love had four different definitions to give the nuance that we have one word for. So storge love, storge. Storge is referring to familial love. So it's the kind of love that you kind of almost feel by default for your family. That warm type of love that you have for your parents and siblings, and it's kind of like, you know what? Even though we we live together and sometimes you're irritated with each other, there's this underlying bond of love within a family, storge. So that's what that would be referring to. Philia is the type of love that you feel towards a close friend. The city of Philadelphia, for example, is is built off of that, the city of brotherly love, philia. So friendship love. And it's usually associated with a reciprocal type of love where, you know, you do something good for me, I'll do something good for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's kind of encapsulated uh, within philia. And, And as, you know, this love is reciprocated, it deepens the bond of friendship. Now, eros is the one that most of us would recognize as the first definition of love because it's most associated with romantic love. You know, that sort of passionate love associated with Valentine's Day and weddings, right? So eros, Cupid's arrow, and hearts, and all that kind of stuff. That is referring to specifically romantic love. And so now we come to agape, the fourth definition. And agape is much different and stands apart from the first three definitions of love. Agape is a word that seems to have in fact been invented by the early Christians, perhaps even by the Apostle John or the Apostle Paul, because they used it more than anyone else. There's actually no recorded record of this word agape being used in Greek literature prior to the New Testament. And so it seems to have been coined by the early believers to describe a new type of love that the world had never really seen before. And so this word agape, as the authors of the New Testament used it, is best defined this way. Agape is the active love of God for his son Jesus and for his children. And it is the active love that his children are to have for God in return, for others and even for their enemies. So in short, to summarize, agape is the active love of God and the active love returned to him by his children. Using this term for love, agape, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John writes, We agape him because he first agaped us. We love him because he first loved us. So God is the one who, who began this love. We love him because he first 
loved us. You see, you and I as fallen, as sinful people, as descendants of Adam and Eve, apart from God, we are incapable of agape. We are incapable of it. We, we simply cannot agape God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for that reason, we also are incapable of agapeing our neighbors as ourselves. The very, very best love that you or I are capable of is storge, philia, or eros. And even then, it has, it has its limits, right? Because that love always has conditions attached to it. You know, I, I will love my family so long as they remain loyal, but if they betray me, that love suddenly is changed drastically or gone altogether. Same with that philia. You know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Well, what happens if you stop scratching my back? What happens if you stop acting friendly towards me? There's a condition attached. Same with, with Eros, perhaps more so than all the others. I couldn't help but laugh. I know it's pop culture stuff, but it pops up in my news feed the other day that, that Pamela Anderson had married her longtime boyfriend. And then it popped up just this morning or last night that after 12 days of marriage, they've gone Splitsville. 12 days! Oh, what happened to this Eros? What happened to this love? Well, something changed, right? And so it's so conditional. And that's the very best that we as humans are capable of is these first three. Agape, we are incapable of because it is unconditional in its nature. Unconditional. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Again, using the term agape for love, Paul says this. But God demonstrates his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Elsewhere, Paul says, while we were still enemies of God. And so here you see that God reveals his character, who he is, and the full extent of his love by taking this incredible inexplicable, unexplainable action of sending his only begotten son to die for a sin-stained world that deserves nothing less than his judgment. We had done nothing to deserve this extravagant love, this giving, this action to come and to save us. And so in this tremendous act of divine intervention, we see God's heart and the way and the manner and the depth in which he loves. And John tells us that not only is God loving, but that in fact God is love. You see, God is, is not just someone out, you know, who, who's created all of this, who says, I can choose to be loving, or I can choose to be judgmental. No, the very core of God's nature is love. God is love, just as God is holy. And so, of course, the judgment stems out of the holiness his, his primary desire for all of the world is that we would not be judged, but that we would be saved. And so we see this comes from the core of who he is. Agape is not just what God does. Agape is who God is. And so it should come as no surprise to us that our Heavenly Father desires that we, his children, become more and more like him. You see, God desires that love is not just something we choose to do from time to time, but something that we become, something that we are. And so when we truly and actively love with our hearts, we are emulating God. 
We are becoming like him, more and more, molded into the image of his son. And so, now, what does the word love mean according to God's word? Well, to recap, it is agape. Eros, philia, storge, they all have their place. But when the New Testament is talking about love, it is using that word agape. And so that means that for us as followers of Jesus Christ, and Paul says, so walk in the way of agape, that is our whole calling. And Jesus summarized it as such, agape, actively, with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, love the Lord your God and love others in that same way as you would love him and as you would even love yourself. With everything you've got, no strings attached, unconditionally. So now the second question that we've really identified, what this agape is. The second question is this, who exactly are these others that we are called to love? Who are the others in our lives? Well, we begin, of course, with those closest to us, spouses, family, and friends, our our inner circle, you know, the, the default people in our lives, as it were. You know, they always say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family, right? You just got them. And so that's where we begin with love. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives this strong instruction to the love that a husband is to have for his wife. He says, Husbands, agape your wife. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ agape the church and gave himself up for her. That's a strong command. Tom Toole, the pastor of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York, He tells of a wedding that he once conducted on a family farm. And the reason it was at the family farm and not in their church was because the bride's mother had an advanced case of Alzheimer's. The Alzheimer's was so acute that most times she was barely conscious. She never responded with words. All she could do was groan and grunt and sometimes moan. In fact, she did this most of the time. The couple wanted to be wed on the family farm so that this mother could attend the daughter's wedding without any stress of travel. And so Pastor Toole arrived to find this family farm with a large front porch on the house, beautifully decorated, ornate white chairs stacked neatly in rows in front. The members of the bridal party were all gathered there, bright and beautiful people, successful and educated. And when Pastor Toole checked in on the bride before the service, she asked if it would be all right if her father took her mother up to the first row. Well, he, of course, assured her that this would be fine, and she assured him that if her mother's groans were to get too loud or distracting, that, that her father would, would take her out or carry her to the back. And Tool said, of course, this is fine. This is your special day. Of course, you would want your mother in the front row. And so the hour arrived, and there, just before the service began and the families took their places, the father carried in his frail little wife in his arms. And he sat down there in the very front row, and he held her in his arms like someone would hold a little child. And the groomsmen walked in, followed by the bridesmaids. The processional was beautiful. Every attention to detail in the dresses and flowers had been made. And when the bride and groom finally took their places, and the anticipated moment arrived for them to exchange their wedding vows, the groom recited the traditional vows. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish 
as long as we both shall live. And that's when it happened, related Pastor Tua later. As the groom was reciting those words, the frail mother, sitting in the front row, whose Alzheimer's disease didn't even allow her to recognize her own daughter on her wedding day, suddenly looked up at her husband's face with the light of recognition in her eyes. And she began to groan along loudly with the vows. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for as long as we both shall live. Everyone there heard her groans along with those vows. They looked as her husband sat there, tears streaming down his face. It had been 50 years earlier that the father of the, the, father of the bride and his wife, now cradled in his arms like a little child, had spoken those same vows. And that husband, cradling his wife of 50 years, earned a PhD in loving, says Pastor Toole. He finished the race and kept his vows. He cared for his wife until the very end. That, my friends, is a picture of agape, as Paul was talking about it in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's not a conditional thing that only if you're beautiful and healthy and everything's going great. These vows are vows to be kept sacredly for life. And he did so to the very end. This is agape. And we begin with those closest to us. Husband to wife, wife to husband. Parent to child and child to parent. Brother to sister and sister to brother. And within the family of God, aren't we all brothers and sisters in Christ? And so in this immediate church family of Clarny Mennonite, Jesus' words to us, his instructions to us is this, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He goes so far as to say, by this everyone will know you are my followers if you love one another. It's not how well we preach or teach out in the community, it's how we love one another in here. That's the calling card of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said, and so that's the final word. And so now we start with those closest to us, the others. We start with those in our own families and those within the family of faith. But love, if it is agape love, begins but does not end at home with our biological family or our church family or our friends. The others must extend further to those we hardly know or even to complete strangers. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the best examples of this. The Samaritan is passing by that wounded man lying there bloodied on the side of the road. He doesn't know him from Adam. In fact, he has every reason to just keep on going because he can probably see that this is a Jewish man and I'm a Samaritan. They look down on us. This man wouldn't return the favor for me if it was me lying there. In fact, he had other motives to keep on going that day. He had places to go. He was on a journey. He had a destination, a a schedule to keep. The robbers could still be lurking. You know, he doesn't know what could happen if he stops to help this complete stranger. He had every reason to keep on traveling, just like the two good Jewish men had done before him. But that Samaritan demonstrated agape. He saw a need, and he stopped. And then he went so far as to put himself at personal risk and at personal cost, help this complete stranger. 
And he even circles back around after putting him up in an inn to make sure all the bills are paid and that this man is well and truly on the mend. Active love for a complete stranger. You know, it's somewhat easier and expected when we love people at home. But how about a server at a restaurant? A clerk in a convenience store? The kid who pumped your gas? The, the single mom that you know on your street who's struggling to make ends meet? Maybe that boy in your class who everyone else is kind of picking on because he looks a little funny and he doesn't have the nicest clothes? The girl who sits by herself at lunch? How about that coworker who rubs you the wrong way? That homeless man who approaches you in the superstore parking lot looking for a buck or two? Someone wrote in the well-known newspaper column, Ann Landers, and she shared the following story from her life. She wrote, Dear Ann Landers, I'm a 46-year-old woman divorced with three grown children. After several months of chemotherapy following a mastectomy for breast cancer, I was starting to put my life back together when my doctor called with the results of my last checkup. They had found more cancer, and I was devastated. Last Saturday, I headed for the laundromat. You see the same people there almost every week. We exchange greetings and make small talk. So I pulled into the parking lot, determined not to look depressed, but my spirits were really low. While taking my laundry out of the car, I looked up and I saw a man, one of the regulars, leaving with his bundle of laundry. He smiled at me and said, Good morning, how are you today? And suddenly, just like that, I lost control of myself and I blurted out, This is the worst day of my life. I have more cancer. And I just began to bawl. Well, he just walked up and put his arm around me and just let me bawl. And then he finally said, I understand My wife has been through it too. After a few minutes, I stopped sobbing and got a hold of myself, stammered out my thanks, and proceeded on to do my laundry. About 15 minutes later, here he came back with his wife. And without saying a word, she walked over and wrapped me up in a big hug. Then she said, I've been there too. Feel free to talk to me. I know what you're going through. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me. Here was this total stranger taking her time to give me emotional support and courage to face the future at a time when I was ready to give up. Oh, I hope God gives me a chance to do for someone else what that wonderful woman and her husband did for me that day. Meanwhile, and please let your readers know that even though there are a lot of hard-hearted people in this world, there are some incredibly generous and loving ones too. That, my friends, is another picture of what agape looks like. To love with our hearts, a complete stranger. Going out of their way, taking that extra time and effort to see here's a person hurting in need and we're going to love them. We're going to show them the love of Christ. And so it begins with those closest to us. It extends even to strangers. But again, if it is agape, it does not end there. In Luke chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Then verse 35, But I tell you, love your enemies and do good to them. Love your enemies and do good to them. In The Grace of Giving, Stephen Olfort 
tells of a Baptist pastor during the American Revolutionary War. His name was Peter Miller. He lived in Epaphora, Pennsylvania. And in that same town also lived Michael Whitman. And Michael Whitman was an evil-minded sort of a man who was an atheist who did all he could to oppose and humiliate the pastor on a repeated basis. However, the day came where Michael Whitman was arrested by the government troops for treason and sentenced to die. Now, many would have expected this pastor to celebrate his enemy's demise. But rather than celebrating his enemy's demise, Pastor Miller traveled 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of a traitor. Presiding over the execution was General Washington himself, to whom Pastor Miller made his plea to spare Michael Whitman's life. No, Peter, General Washington replied, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, explained the, exclaimed the old preacher, he's not my friend. He is the most bitter enemy that I have ever had in my life. What? cried General Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts this matter in a different light. I'll grant you your pardon. And he did. And so Michael Whitman was released from the gallows, and Pastor Miller took him back home to Epaphra, enemies no longer. Only agape can do that. None of the other three types of love are capable of doing that. Only the love of Christ that is willing to come down and say, I am going to put myself in the place of Barabbas, a man who is guilty of crime, a man who deserves what's coming to him. I will, I will step into his place. I will die for him. And in that sense, we are all Barabbas. We all deserve that cross. And the one thief on the cross recognized this fact when he said, I'm dying for what I deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Remember me. Only agape is capable of that. And moved by the agape of God, this old preacher realized that if he was going to love the way Christ loved him, he was going to go and intercede on behalf of even his enemy. And doing that changed everything. Only agape can accomplish that. Only agape can come from God. We cannot conjure it up from ourselves I can't conjure it up from within me. It's simply not there apart from God. I must go to God, receive his agape for me, love him back in return, and as this is happening, I will have it to share with others, with those closest to me, with strangers, and even with enemies. This is God's plan for us as his church, and anything that he plans, he will empower through his grace and through his indwelling Holy Spirit. So let's rely on him for it today. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, today we recognize the supremacy of love, not as the world understands it, but as you have revealed it. Agape, your active love that gave of yourself when we were enemies. When we had done nothing to deserve it, you gave your son a willing sacrifice for our sins to reconcile us to you. And as you showed us what agape is, coming from the very core of who you are, you've invited us to step into it as well, to not only receive it, but to give it back to you in full thanksgiving 
With everything that we have in our mind, soul, heart, and strength, we love you. And we pray, Lord, that as we love you and and receive your love in return, that this would overflow. For you have called us not only to love you, but to love others with this same love. Those closest to us, strangers, and yes, even enemies, even adversaries who would oppose us, ridicule us, call us names, you have called us and equipped us to love them with the love that you have given us. And so, Lord, we know we can't conjure this up. We can't create this within ourselves. We can only receive it from you. And so today we open our hands and we ask, Heavenly Father, pour this agape love into our hearts. Fill up our cup in full measure that we may return it to you with grateful hearts and share it with others who so desperately need it. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.